stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 426 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Catonsville, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. And from San Bruno, California, I am Duncan Palamortis. Duncan, welcome back to the show. I have such fond memories of the first time that you were on here. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for having me. Let's hope we don't overhype it for the viewers, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me hype you first. Uh, so you're a professor of mathematics at the University of California. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot which which campus you're at. Los Angeles, UCLA. Okay, you are at UCLA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you're also the host of the Philosophical Fridays uh, podcast on the Chasing Poker Greatness. Is it a network? Is that the, the right way to refer to that? That's I think I think that's great. Yes, absolutely. I think people will, will know what that means. Yes. Which uh, I've I've been a guest on several times. I enjoyed talking to to you guys. I thought you asked great questions. It gave me a chance to talk about things that um, I sometimes take the liberty of talking about on here. But it was nice to have a forum where it's uh, you know downright encouraged and, and recommended. <laughs> of course, of course, absolutely. That's that's what this podcast are for. Uh, and then you also are the author of um, Why Alex Beats Bobby at Poker, which is, uh, I mean, is, is it fair to call it an, an introduction to using uh, game theory in, in poker? Or would you just drop the, the word introduction entirely and just say it's about using game theory in, in poker? Right. I don't mind, you know, uh, words mean different things to different people, but uh, basically uh, it's, you, you can call it introduction. It's also for beginners, but it can also be for People who've been playing this game, it's it's essentially extracting the what I would consider to be the essence of the game. Mm -hmm. So for some people, that's an introduction. But for some other people, you know, they've been playing the game for like 10 years and somehow they see it for the first time. So hopefully, you know, I'm trying to extract the basic ideas. Yeah, I, I had the same challenge with uh, play optimal poker of really trying to think about you know who who's the audience for this because I think we were probably right. trying to do similar things. And right. you are kind of like if if you. If you present it, like I did want to start from fundamentals, but also I think there's a lot of experienced poker players, as you said, who don't actually know those fundamentals. And so you you do sort of want to convey like, eh, this might actually be for you. Or like, maybe you skip the first chapter, but then, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, even the word fundamentals means different means different things to different people because a lot of people listening right now would think okay fundamentals means like okay does a straight beat a flush right uh <laughs> and then for other people it's like it's more the um game theory um uh, topics that you're um, talking about so yeah i've definitely talked to some players who are very experienced in terms of like how long they've been playing but they don't know necessarily the fundamentals when it comes to game theory that is a very, uh, very, very good point, Carlos. And also, I would all, I would add to this that sometimes what happens is, even if people know the fundamentals, sometimes they don't pay as much attention to them, or they don't value them as much as they. Well, should is a very big word, but you know, at least I'm making the case that the fundamentals are very important. Is uh, you know what we would call the, the the ripe fruit, so to speak, right? I mean, the things that are available. Uh, that have the most bang for your buck. And obviously, this is a controversial topic. And some people say, you know what? I mean, 
we were in 2024 right now, you know, who, who, who cares about, you know, playing against the fish, all the rage is beating, you know, the, the, the strongest players out there and things like that. So is, is that true? Is that all the rage? I, I, I care about beating fish. That's all I care about. <laughs> I, 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 I love that you guys say that, you know, because it's, it, it seems to me, okay. That, that's why I say this is a controversial topic, but I, I get the sense that people are paying like really, really good money to, actually learn all the minutia and um what i would i would call diminishing returns and don't get me wrong i mean uh, andrew you and i we've we've talked about this in the past i mean the the power of of, of game theory optimal strategies I and mean, there's a lot of things we can extract but it feels to me i get the sense that in the in our industry a lot of people really want to prioritize i really want to know these these strategies and 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 one fun fact, just very quickly, I made the mistake once in my my classes to actually go a little bit deeper into those things, <laughs> busting out some charts, and people fell in love immediately. And I'm like, no, 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 guys, this is this is not. We can talk about that stuff all day long, but this is not where you're gonna find most of the profitability. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have even more of that that problem of like who's the audience now because I write for the the GTO Wizard blog, which obviously like many of the best players in the world are using. I don't know that they're reading the blog, but like they're using GTO Wizard. A lot of like extremely sophisticated players are in that community, but I don't know how many of them are like actually reading the the blog or like who exactly is is the target audience of of that. What level I should be writing for, and um, so you know I'm always kind of like, and I'm trying to be put questions out on like Twitter or ask on on the the GTO Wizard on their discord you know like what what's actually on people's minds because what's interesting to me is to go really deep on on something like oh let's look at like different bet sizes on the river after the turn checks through and like i know there is an audience for that but then like when i ask people you know what are your questions it's very broad very fundamental stuff you know it's like well should i be using gto at the small stakes or you know how do you think about c betting and i kind of wonder like how much should i be hammering on that stuff versus really going going deep on the um as you you call it the the diminishing returns no this is this is an excellent question you know it is an open-ended question at this point but absolutely um so aside from philosophical fridays like what all have you been doing well i guess both in in and outside of the the poker world is, is there another book in the works uh, okay uh it, it's interesting that you asked because there, there's been there's been a lot of poker that that's always the case but uh outside of the of the poker world i've been working on something that i'm not even sure if i want to publish it or not i've been toying with this idea of epistemology and uh, and ethics i've been always interested in trying to bridge the gap in disagreement between people. What what possible relevance could that have to America today? <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, <laughs> oh man, exactly. Classic, classic ivory tower. <laughs> right, exactly. And um it's something, you know, that uh, I've been I've been working for for for, for quite some time. I mean it, it's mostly, you know, like I'm collecting my thoughts. I'm trying to basically write some of these ideas down and and some of these things have I I I have mentioned those before in the in the podcast and in some of our previous discussions it comes down to this concept which I call meta meta humility which is very closely related to what some other people may call epistemic humility the, the idea that you know there is a certain amount of unknowability that we cannot overcome and that 
amount of unknowability, it actually limits us in, in the sense that uh, we uh, cannot expect to supersede uh, our peers, no matter how good we may are in a certain domain. That's sort of the idea that no matter how versatile or uh, knowledgeable we think about a, a subject, which can actually lead to what we can call a confidence within a specific domain, there's always so many things that we don't know. And more importantly, we don't even know what else we mm -hmm. don't know. So, and this is where some sort of like a claim about our claims needs to come into play and analysis of our own analysis needs to come into play and realize that what if I'm, if I'm, I'm missing something? What if, you know, the reason why I may feel a little bit uh, better in this domain than my, uh, than my other side is irrelevant because, you know, people 500 years from now, they look at me, they're going to look at me and they're going to think, you know, oh my God, look at this little peasant. He had no idea at the time, <laughs> you know? So, and that's, that's, that's the concept of, uh, of, of, of meta-humility. It's, it's mostly like an epistemic kind of, uh, kind of deal. And I feel it is, it, it could potentially be be very, very, very important. And it's it's different from humility in the sense that, you know, we don't want to, there's a little bit of a danger, I, I, I sort of realized early on, there's a little bit of a danger to say, oh, you know what, we can be all Socratic, we know one thing, we know nothing. And uh, it, it's going to impede our progress if every time we try to do something in life, we say, you know what, I don't know. There are some things that we may know better than others, but when it comes to you know trying to impose our opinions and our thoughts on others, that's where meta humility kicks in, you know, because maybe others see something or know something that we don't. Hopefully, that sort of makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm just like always thinking about the the parallels with poker while you're talking, and um, I think that's really where game theory comes in for me. I have a, a little introduction to Plasma Poker where I talk about this, that I, I sort of hit on game theory while I was trying to find certainty in poker. And and game theory is not uncertainty, but it is kind of the closest thing that you can get to like, when, when you are uncertain, this is the best that you can do. Uh, so you're just trying to answer really basic, you know, a really basic question, like, did I play the sand correctly? I mean, you you cannot answer that question in poker. It can look good in retrospect, it, it, given what your opponent had or what your opponent did. It can look like you did or or did not play it correctly. Um, you can run it past very you know other very good players or people who you respect, and you can get their opinions on it. You can now you can ask like a solver or something. Is this how you would have played it? But none of that actually tells you whether you played it correctly. I mean, because they each of those things they can they can tell you what what game theory says, but that doesn't factor in who this individual was and what information you might have had about them and and the the metagame aspects of things. So the the more that I was, but that's very frustrating, right? for, especially for someone with like a philosophical background where you you are kind of wanting to like, well, I, I want to start from something firm and then build up from there and poker kind of doesn't let you do that or like we we pretend that things are firm so we can stand on them for a little while and you know like step up to the next thing like pre-flop ranges or something like that or uh, i don't know continuation betting but then at some point you kind of have to look back and say okay well i was, I was sort of hand-waving and pretending this stuff was firm but like actually it wasn't but now that i'm saying that i mean that is kind of how philosophy works also 
That, that's exactly right. and by the way i'm glad you mentioned that because you you spoke like the perfect meta humble individual i absolutely love that but there's why i call it meta humble is because you're not stopping and saying oh you know what i cannot you're still trying to answer the questions to 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 base them on on, on solid fundamental ground but there is an actually an interesting um heuristic um that i, I sort of like thought about a, a, a problem like this there is a concept which I call um, the locality of truth. And what do I mean by the locality of truth is that, for example, we take something specific like poker or you take any any science and you start from specific sentences or facts that are given to you. People they call them axioms. And from there, we derive things. Philosophy does, does the same thing. What's interesting about all of our systems is that we need some bootstraps. We need to start somewhere, right? I mean, these are the facts. You know, we start by something that not everybody can agree on. Like, for example, broccoli is delicious. That's not a statement that is false or true. You know, some people may find it true. Some people may find it false. However, depending on where you stand on this, you can lead to different conclusions. I feel that poker is exactly the same thing. So there is no, you're absolutely correct. There's no right or wrong answer in the ultimate sense of the world. That's meta-humility. There can't be, there cannot be an ultimate answer. However, once we start putting facts into there, sort of arbitrarily, sort of like the same way that we will say broccoli is delicious, once we start saying things, for example, like, you know, making the most money per hour is what matters the most to me right now, which is not, by the way, what matters to most people. That would be one sort of like flexible assumption that we can put in there. Once we start putting, you know, uh, rules like you know i do not want to cheat you know like cheating is not uh, some people do cheat you know so you put all of these specific assumptions into the game then from there uh, you'll say for example i'm going to accept the the the, the rules of, of mathematics like you know i want to one plus one equals two because under in, in some context one plus one equals one you know like whatever some some weird context where you know two means one or who knows like, you know what I mean? Like, we, we, we can go endless with this thing, right? I mean, and once we set these rules, then we can see how these rules, how far they can, they can take us. And within that system, once the rules have been set in place, I agree with you that there is actually technically only one answer. Of course, we've set those rules arbitrarily, right? So we didn't violate the lack of universal truth. But we can still get local answers with a scope which can be as big, depending on they can the, the scope of our truth can be bigger the fewer assumptions we have. Now, saying things like that, in my experience, tends not to make you a very popular poker coach because people want the answer. So when you're kind of like, well, I can yeah. give you a meta answer within certain constraints. <laughs> if you tell me the assumptions that you're comfortable making, I can tell you the, and people are like, Jesus Christ, just tell me what I'm supposed to do here. Like, I love it. I love it. And that's why people, you know, they fell in love with the charts, right? Because they they, they want the answers. Absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. But what I find fascinating, it's, it's sometimes interesting to to discuss and try to explore those assumptions with people. But you're absolutely correct. No, I was going to say, like, the thing that, you know, as the student becomes better, these sort of teachings become more relevant because what you learn is that you become a better player if you can start from multiple sets of assumptions. So I've run into this recently where uh, a general assumption that I have is that most players in the low to 
I'm not, I'm not going to say stakes. I'm going to say in soft games. Mm-hmm. Most players in soft games tend to be overly passive as opposed to overly aggressive. Like that is what I what Duncan calls a a, a rule, even though it's, it's like very similar to like broccoli is delicious. Like that's something that, you know, for a long time, I just accept it as almost like a universal truth. And when that is true, starting from that place will allow you to make some pretty good exploits, even beyond what you can do uh, if you came into it from a GTO approach. But then when you get into an environment where it's a soft game, but the way this game is soft is that people are like too aggressive in spots, then that breaks down. So if if the student can understand what the teacher is saying when they when when he talks about you know how these rules can apply in certain areas but but not in others, then you can come in with okay in some soft games uh, the average player is overly passive, so you do this, and then other soft games the average player is overly aggressive, and then you do this, and so your exploits are going to change based on those assumptions. And I I feel like anytime you're playing poker against humans, if you're playing in a field where you feel like you have an edge, then there should be a lot less uncertainty. Like, so like, like Andrew, you always say that GTO is the best you can do when you're uncertain. And then I will ask like, I'm uncertain of what, what's the definition of uncertainty? (laughs) (laughs) Because like, I'm certain that these humans are not playing perfectly. <laughs> right. So I'm uncertain of how, which mistakes they're going to make, but you know, I can kind of guess it's either they're going to be over aggressive, overly passive. They're not going to be completely balanced. So I am certain that they're not completely balanced, but I'm uncertain if they're going to be over aggressive or overly passive. And so in the past, I've always assumed these sort of players are overly passive and I play accordingly and I deviate from GTO accordingly. But then lately, um, I've been running into some soft fields where I feel like I'm getting three bet a lot and check raised a lot. And because I know what to do against that player type also, then that gives me some flexibility that allows me to uh, be competitive in either of these environments where if I was you know, the broccoli is is always delicious, no matter what guy, (laughs) then, you know, I would struggle expecting soft feels to be overly passive uh, when I run into some that are overly aggressive. And that was me like, you know, a year or two ago. Yeah. And I think even, even to say like, you know, this person is, is too passive or something. I mean, that that's a, a general, a general statement about them. And it does maybe help you do better than agnostic when you're in situations where you're like, I don't really know what they're going to do. But I mean, I think even among poor players, you do tend to encounter like there are certain situations where people are going to be too loose and that same player might be too aggressive in in a different situation. Yes. Um, or sorry, passive versus aggressive. And I think you see it even more with uh, looseness versus tightness. So I, like, I think it's a very right. common dynamic in a, in a lot of like, especially deeper stacked live cash games where I call this splashiness. Like people are too loose on early streets. They like to see flops. Maybe they're even a little speculative to see the turn. It's with absolute dollars. You know, they're they're comfortable gambling, and and even whether or not they're going to admit it, like being at a loss when they're putting in like twenty or twenty five dollars. But then when you're at a point where you're asking them to put in a thousand dollars, they might be too tight, and they're actually like, especially given for how loose they were on earlier streets, they have like a big pyramid problem where they they very rarely reach the river with the hand they want to play a huge pot with. 
And so, you know, I, I think that like when you say like, what uncertain about the, the definition of uncertainty, the the way that, and I'm, I know you've heard me say this, but just for people who are listening, the way that I tend to express this is like, if you feel comfortable saying, I know how to exploit this person, then go ahead and do it. And you don't need my advice for that. Like if you are find yourself and you're like, I don't, I don't know what they have, or I don't know what they're going to do with it. That's where game theory is a useful tool for you. And so I just, you know, I, I like to think of it as a tool. And so it's frustrating to me when people say, well, the solver says I should do this, or, you know, game theory says I should do this. I have to do this. And it's like, well, it's not telling you what to do. It's telling you within a certain set of uh, assumptions or within a certain framework or in the absence of certain assumptions, here's a pretty good baseline strategy. Whether you want to try to improve on that, uh, there's plenty of situations where where you should, but that's, I think it's a useful tool to have to fall back on. Um, I, I one One thing I like to say is, you know, it's, Game theory is a useful tool for anyone who has ever been in a situation where they weren't sure what to do at a poker table. And that doesn't mean maybe there's plenty of situations where you are sure, but if you ever are not sure, it's a useful tool. So the, the question that arises here is that when we say sure, are we talking like, you know, if I'm like 80, 90 percent sure what to do, then of course I'm going to deviate. But if I'm like 60 percent sure, 55 percent sure, then maybe that's not enough to... um rely on my thoughts and then that's another spot where you would just um stick to gto or to have a sense of um which again you, you you'll know from play optimal poker to have a sense of like how how big of a deviation is this is this sort of like well this would be a mixed strategy at equilibrium anyway so it it you know, I might as well like just go on a little bit of a hunch, or is it like we're talking about folding the second nut? So you know, you'd have to be pretty <laughs> damn sure before you're. But like, I've done that. You know, like there's yeah. there's times where I'm just like, okay, this guy just has it. Like that's that's all there is to it. Um, but so having a sense of like how big of, of a deviation is this, um, and may, maybe that falls into your into your meta humility thing as well, Duncan. No, yes. I, 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 absolutely, and, and and I would say that you know, like the moment that we define things, like like Carlos, you just mentioned, you know, like what if I'm 60 percent sure? I would say sixty uh, percent sure is I, I want to call it a meta certainty of sorts, right? Because you're certain you're sixty percent sure, <laughs> right? Right. So this is an interesting thing. If we if we are more often than not, it would be like I'm I'm not even sure how sure I am about about this. So like the, the, as you guys are are, are are talking, you know, I'm, I'm realizing that you're bringing us some very important points uh, that the assumptions themselves are not clear when they're there, right? I mean, sometimes the assumptions are very vague and we're not sure where we are. And an interesting thing about probability in general is that once we define the probabilities clearly, most problems can be solved, even theoretically, and almost all problems can be solved, at least with numerical methods. So we can really give an answer, like, you know, we can start calculating the EV, you know, 60% of the time I'm right about this, so my EV will be such, the remaining 40% of the time, you know, we're going to give a worst case scenario, we can find an EV, so to speak. But the, the real trouble begins when, you know, we have uncertainty within our uncertainty. Yes. One of the the things that I like to do to um to, to highlight uncertainty, I'm thinking back to when you talked about people really like seeing those charts and latching onto that as kind of a source of certainty of like, well, you raise these hands and, and not these hands. Right. And I really like the display. And I'm trying to do more work like on, on the GTA Wizard blog of highlighting this. Mm -hmm. There's a display where you can switch from just seeing the, the strategy where it's like some boxes are green and some boxes are red and it makes right. it look very clear. Like, okay, <laughs> these are the ones you play and these are the ones right. you don't play and that's all there is to it. But then switching that 
from um, from just the strategy view to the EV comparison, where mm -hmm. you're seeing what is the difference in EV between taking this action versus taking that action. And now you're seeing a spectrum instead of just seeing, uh, I mean, not literally black and white, but green and red, you know, right. it's not just, it's, it's all this or all that. And so a lot of things that look like, oh, well, this is, this is pure green. So that's like a really good call. On this other hand, it's pure red. So that's a really bad fold, but or a really good fold, a bad call, but actually like they're extremely close. And so having a sense of, you know, uh, I guess that, that gets to the point about like how, how large of a deviation am I, am I making? Very, very good point. Exactly. Because like the color, it, it would be like sort of like some sort of like a thermal image where it's not enough to see green, but also. Yeah. It's literally called a heat map. Heat map. Exactly. Um, so you mentioned a thing a while ago, just in, in passing, Duncan, but I, I want to call you back to it. Uh, you, you kind of said as though it were very obvious, like, well, you know, maybe if we agreed that we're just trying to maximize dollars per hour, but that's not actually what most people are doing. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people think that is what they're doing. So <laughs> what, what do you mean when you say that? Or what, what is it that you think most people are doing? Right. So when I was writing the book, um, you know, I, I approached the book from the perspective, of course, of, uh, you know, somebody who plays the, the game profitably. And the question I ask myself, okay, if there is a person who's playing the game profitably, it means they get the profit, obviously, from somebody else. How is this other person who's sitting at the table, presumably an intelligent person as well, you know, uh, especially like if you go and play like, you know, top sections in most casinos, you meet a lot of successful people. So what is it that this other person is doing and they're losing? Is it just, are they just, you know, not good enough at this game? And they're really trying so hard to win, but they just somehow fail. And it sort of like dawned on me that they may not have the same priorities as the professional poker player. And those priorities, for example, could be having fun. You know, like you see a lot of players, this was coming, by the way, from a, a, a live perspective. Like, you know, after, after Black Friday, I moved larger to, to play live. So this is predominantly. So for people who are listening, cash games, uh, I play cash games almost exclusively and, and live. So that might be relevant for context. But like, why are these people, you know, willing to sit down day after day, you know, after, you know, against winning players and lose lose money to us? Like, what is it? And, and I feel that they have different priorities. So they still want to win money, but money winning money may not be their top priority. I remember like a few years ago, uh, Chimak Palihipatia, when he was talking about playing with uh, Phil Helmuth in, in the Bay Area, uh, really close here, Palo Alto is very close here. So he would say things like, uh, you know, I would sit there playing against Phil, losing hand after hand until finally I got this hand, like, you know, my three, seven suited or whatever. And I give beat, I give Phil a bad beat. And it was like, it was worth the price of admission, you know? <laughs> so, so like he was basically having blowout EV, right? I mean, he was playing for blowout right. EV, right? So... <laughs> That made me realize that not all people prioritize things equally. That is not to say that these people like to lose money, but they may have different priorities. And because they, they have different priorities, we have that interesting dynamic at the poker table. And, you know, the reason why I, I really wanted that is because I didn't want my, my, my book is called Why Alex Beats Bobby, but it, I'm, not, I'm not trying to talk down on Bobby. I just view Bobby as somebody who has a different perspective. And I think it is incredibly important. I'm not trying to be condescending to anybody. It's very clear on, on the book. But like, Bobby can be an intelligent individual. I think I would be more condescending if I was trying to say, you know, 
that, you know, Bobby, you cannot beat this game. You, you're incapable of beating it. You, you know, you, you're not smart enough or whatever. I, I think that would be unfair to them. Instead, Bobby sort of willingly donates some of his money because maybe it, it doesn't mean as much to him. It's sort of like the same way that some people spend money to, you know, go to resorts or, you know, to go skiing and things like that. Maybe Bobby has some extra disposable income that he spends for gambling. When I heard your first appearance on the show, uh, it's nice to see, uh, uh, I assume this is California in your background, because that's where I was driving through. And like, just listening to your voice, discussing this book, uh, driving through California, I have fond memories of that, of that first episode. And I definitely got the impression that you were not talking down on Bobby. Is that like, like the way that book was presented was very fair to both sides and also clear on each player's uh, incentives. Thank, thank you, Carlos. Yeah, that, that was that was that was my, my intention. Yeah, and I, it was important, very important to me uh, to to because again, I know I'm biased on the one side, so right. it, it, it it was it was it was important uh, to me to to do that. I've I've encountered an interesting set of incentives recently, even among some winning players. I've had a few people who have hired me to um, help them think about how to approach a game that is uh, like a very good opportunity, like a very high stakes game with people who are not very good at poker, but is more money than they're fully comfortable. Uh, and, and these are not necessarily well-known professional players where they're right. in a position that they can like, because like the, the answer for me would just be sell action, like play optimally, <laughs> sell action, uh, charge a little bit of markup maybe on the action and, and you're good to go. But some people don't have that available to them as like a risk mitigation strategy. So people are like, well, I want to play in this really juicy like 5100 game with a bunch of like Wall Street guys and they're they're there to gamble but i'm not really in a position to be winning or losing like fifty thousand dollars in a right. night um i mean i i like they have the money they they can do it but they don't have they don't like they're, they're trying to think about like how can i how can i still be a winner in this game but except i'm going to have a lower hourly rate except i'm going to have a lower win rate a lower win rate in this game is still going to be plenty of money but can i is there a way that i can like dramatically reduce my variance while while doing that and uh, all i can say you know I'll, I'll help you think through that but we're going to be thinking through it you know that it's not currently something i think there's something you probably could build into a solver but it's not currently right. built into solvers of like how is how is risk uh, like treating risk as a variable that you can solve around. That, that's, a, that's a very good point. Incidentally, a, a very good and winning strategy would be to, to play short stack, but uh, that's probably going to be frowned upon. Well, we talked about that too, because then there's these other incentives of how concerned about you are are you about getting invited back to this game? <laughs> or exactly. <laughs> is this going to like hurt your ability to get action if it's very obvious? Like, are you going to be costing yourself money by by doing that for for other reasons? Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's 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 interesting that you mentioned Andrew because you reminded me I had a similar situation. And let's say some some Hollywood actors were involved in that in that private game. So it was pretty, pretty, pretty juicy game. And uh, it's uh, uh, exactly you, you have to sort of like navigate through these uh, these spots and, and find out what is the uh, the best way to, to do it. Uh, and I think you said it very eloquently. It's very difficult to use the risk as, as, as a variable there. So, and typically the way people are doing modeling uh, in, in situations like this, you can try sort of like, this is the more art than science part. You can try different approaches uh, and evaluate, and, and, and then sort of like, you know, try different approaches. So basically 
choose different assumptions, feed them into, you can use software for that. You can use, uh, again, you can do it by hand. Try, let's say, 10 different scenarios and then compare those 10 different scenarios which you use software for, compare them sort of like by, by a human. So you have a human evaluate which of these 10 scenarios feels like the most sort of like risk-friendly to me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense yeah. to me that you, you could look at, you know, what is the impact, for instance, of having a tighter preflop strategy? Right. If, if I just cut off the bottom 10% of my range from every position, like how much EV is that cost? But that's a question that we can more or less answer. Exactly. Yeah, it's funny that we all had this experience. Yeah, you had it too? <laughs> yeah, I, I have a very funny story about this because I was hired to coach uh, a guy who was playing in one of these sort of games, and this guy is pretty well off, and he wanted coaching live uh, in person. And so I drive up to his nice beach house in the Prius that I live in. <laughs> <laughs> and you know i get out and he's explaining this game to me he's like oh these guys are like so bad and like you know we're buying in for 10 or twenty thousand, and like like how do i beat these guys and when i kind of like listened to his description of the game basically what i came up with is what you said andrew is like you know cut off like maybe the bottom 10 percent of your range and then what's left play it aggressively so basically i gave him a, a um told him to play a tight aggressive strategy sure. and it's for the reason you stated earlier andrew that a lot of these players are splashy on the early streets but they get very tight and they have a pyramid problem when all the money goes in so basically what i told this guy is like play a stronger range and then play it aggressively and put all the money in and it was so hard for me to just form my my mouth to say that when i'm telling <laughs> this guy to like, hey, buy it for twenty thousand and three bet triple barrel it off whether you hit or not, and like twenty thousand was like you know <laughs> net worth, <laughs> and I'm telling this guy to do this every other hand or whatever, and if it, and it was someone who I think could afford it, but didn't necessarily have the stomach for it, right? And so I think he was looking for more of a. Um, a lower variance strategy, but honestly, I felt like that was pretty low variance, <laughs> but it's hard to convince someone that, Hey, putting all my money in and hoping these guys that are even richer than me fold is <laughs> it's hard for them to view that as low variance. But if we're right on our assumptions that these players are loose and splashy on the early streets, and then they tighten up when all the money goes in, then that's the most low variance things you can thing you can do because if you force them to fold, you win hundred percent of the time. So so that was my idea is like if you're chasing and you're just hoping to hit, that's actually high variance. But playing aggressively and forcing them to fold is the low variance thing to do. But you have to have the stomach for it. You're absolutely correct, Carlos. I was trying to find a way to explain that to my students, like exactly what you just said. What you described, um, the idea that sometimes. Cheaper is not actually cheaper in poker. The idea, for example, that limping, you know, uh, not necessarily in tournaments and cash games, like limping is not as cheap as people think. Intuitively, instinctively, people want to limp, let's say, because they think they're going to save money, right? It's cheaper that way. But cheaper is not really cheaper because, again, by being aggressive, you slow down them on later streets, so the hand ends up being cheaper. So the, the metaphor, that's why I got excited. Like mm -hmm. You were saying this, and I was like, Please tell him about the burgers. Please tell him about the burgers uh, to your student. That is, yeah. The, the burgers are the you know the the metaphor that I came up with. That like junk food 
is cheap, but is it really cheap? You know, like junk food has like, you know, health consequences that we may end up like, you know, costing us like medical bills, you know, gym memberships, what have you. So like, I don't know, I, I got excited about this, too, too excited there. Uh, and that is the, typically the, the story that I, that, that I tell people. So, uh, so maybe to your next client, you can tell them about the burgers. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's actually a really good analogy where you think you're saving money now, yeah. but you're actually causing yourself more money in the long run with the, the health consequences. Yeah. That's a really good analogy. I've also encountered kind of the, the, the flip side of this, especially for people who are playing in games that, that they are like very well rolled for, and they're not necessarily looking to, you know, play bigger games or whatever. They just kind of want to do better in the game that they're they're already comfortable in, and they want to play more hands. And like, well, it's boring to just like sit there and play really tight, you know. So one of the things that I'll try to help them understand then is just to under, like just know what the trade offs are that that you're making. So I, I talked to somebody who um who was ha having trouble wrapping his head around the idea that like calling raises with pocket pairs was not a great idea. And I kind of I tried to explain like very logically, well, especially like call in an early position, there's a significant chance you're going to get re-raised or you can't just assume you're going to win the person stack every time you hit it. And so I don't think it's like the, the hugest mistake if you're playing against like bad players, but I do think you're, you're losing money. You're losing at least a little bit of money by, by doing, even by raising these hands in early position at all. And uh, he came back to me our next session, two weeks later or whatever. And he said, you know, I, I thought about what you said about the pocket pairs and, and it all makes sense, but I decided I just really like it. You know, I, I like trying to fluff sets. It's fun. And if it's not costing me that much, I think I'm going to keep doing it. I was like, yeah, that's totally fine. Like as long I, <laughs> I just see my job as I want you to understand what are the trade-offs because I think sometimes people are taking really big trade-offs without realizing it. Um, and I, you know, that's been my advice sometimes to people who are trying to cut their risk threshold too much, like in, in tournaments, especially where they're just like, oh, well, I folded because I didn't want to take a flip. And I was like, you only needed 35% equity to call. Like a flip would be fantastic. You would love to take a flip. And like, I think people don't fully appreciate, like, that, I guess that's what I view my role as, as a coach or a teacher on, on here or the GTA Wizard blog or wherever is just to help people better uh, articulate what the trade-offs are. And then I can't tell you how you should you know, resolve a particular trade-off because I don't have access to your personal preferences and, and criteria, but I can help you better understand what are the trade-offs entailed. Beautiful. And incidentally, I can't help but notice, but the, this could also be used as an answer to your question from earlier, right? I mean, what are some other things that people want to do instead of making money? Right. That would be an example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like not get bluffed is a huge one for a lot of people. Like people just hate the idea of not, I mean, it comes back to the idea of not knowing. I mean, essentially this is, again, a lot of people wouldn't articulate it this way, but what I always tell people um, is you need to be careful about bluffing the river especially in in relatively low stakes games because people want to see your cards and they are willing to pay a premium to see your cards. Uh, they hate the idea that they're getting bluffed. And I know it because I also coach some of those people and people come to me with hands I played years ago and they're like, did I get bluffed here? <laughs> <laughs> this is a really big bot. Did I get bluffed? <laughs> right, yeah. No, they, a professional poker player needs to develop a sort of comfort to feel comfortable in the in the decision without being able to see the hand, right? You're, you're, you're absolutely right about this. And actually, I've been thinking a lot about this, that I, I sort of created a controversial theory, if you will. I call it the theorem of honesty of poker. Just because the people you described, I mean, we call them the sheriffs, right? I mean, the, the person who doesn't want to get bluffed, uh, there's always one of them at the table. And like, I like I, I try to view poker as an ecosystem, right? In the ecosystem of poker, 
the bluffers typically don't get to survive, right? If we, if we view it from a, like, you know, sort of like create a, a, a biological uh, metaphor, they don't get to sur survive and reproduce, so to speak, you know, they because again, you have all the shares at the table, which means that bluffs tend to not go through due to the presence of those sheriffs, which means that the game tends to be pushed towards the honest side, right? So because dishonest players tend to be eliminated by all those sheriffs, they don't get to survive. They get knocked out, so to speak. And of course, this is uh, anybody who's played the game knows that this is a vast oversimplification, but at least it can tell us whether we expect people to underbluff or overbluff in in a vacuum, especially in live games, and and I think like a safe conclusion is, in the vast majority of live games, uh, they're underbluffed, they're underbluffing instead of overbluffing, and that can be a, a potential adjustment. I call that the theorem of honesty. Like poker tends to be more honest than dishonest, certainly more than what people think from what they see in Hollywood movies. Yeah, I I, really, I I use that biological or the evolutionary metaphor quite a lot myself. Um, I one of the ways that I explain this is when you think about moving from uh, one two to two five, uh, and I mean I'm sure you can change these numbers different places, but for a lot of people that like the, for a lot of casinos have both of these stakes. Many casinos don't have anything bigger than that, but I think like most most card rooms are offering games at both one two and at two five, and people who like to beat one two for a lot of those games, the the two big things you learn is to to be tight, you know, to be disciplined pre flop, and then also to like not pay off people's aggression. Uh, like if people are like check raising you and stuff, just kind of believing them and and folding. You find this in like Ed Miller's The Course among other places. Um, that just like you know don't don't pay people off. Sort of wait until you make big hands. Assume that your big hands are going to get paid. And so a lot of people can learn to beat one two following those strategies and they'll move up to two five and in two five uh i mean you you certainly will encounter two five games that look just like the one two games that you're used to but i think especially if you're trying to go to the casino like middle of the day on, on a weekday or something and you're playing with a lot of regulars at two five you're playing with a lot of people who have evolved out of that same uh in, in that same way along that same branch of, of the tree where they've all internalized the same things and they're not thinking of it as an exploit they're just thinking of it as this is poker this is right. you don't pay people off you don't put in 200 big blinds unless you have the nuts you don't you, you, you people always have aces when they three bet you we always have a huge hand when when they three bet you and uh so you have to in order to beat two five or in order to beat those those ray filled games at two five you need to think about that's who those people are and you may need to play in a way against them that subverts those expectations right. where you actually don't always have it when you three about them or you don't always have it when you're putting in 200 big blinds this is this is beautiful and and if you actually read uh richard dawkins uh, selfish gene he's actually explaining the same thing but how exactly happening out there in the wild like i mean he he's talking about that idea where specific species, uh, let's say that they are competing uh, in order to to get a mate, and obviously, like having two, uh, let's say, let's say two males competing for, for for the female, like in I don't know pigeons, like some sort of like animal animal category, and you see the pigeons competing against each other, but obviously, getting into a fight is uh, is very costly. So uh, what happens? You start getting that that idea of, of of bluffing, you know, like you have this pigeon that is going to say, you know, I'm going to if you threaten me, I'm going to get into a fight with you. 
And they, they're bluffing because if the other pigeon says, okay, I'm ready for the fight that you said you, you're going to get with me. <laughs> and then the, and then the other pigeon walk, walks away, right? I mean, that, that idea that, you know, you have if you have a population, it can go either way. Either you have a population with a lot of bluffers, there's going to be the guy eventually who comes up, evolves, and then he's going to basically calls everybody bluffs and going to get all the females, right? That's sort of like the same idea that you're basically describing, right? I mean, you're coming into a specific ecosystem of people who are essentially expecting everybody else to um, underbluff as a, as a response to that, they overfold. And I hear you come with your like, overbets, I mean, um, over as in frequency, not as in sizing, you know, you're, you're more frequently betting and then you're getting, uh, you're getting, I guess we can call it overbluffing. With your overbluffs and you basically get them out and just sort of like get all the money in this case. And this is why your incentives and your reasons for playing poker is so important. Because what we just described is that the best way to beat most games is to do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. But if you're if if you respect these players to the point where you want to be like them, you've already lost. <laughs> because being like them makes you one of them. And then now you're not the outlier who's coming in and exploiting the thing that everyone else is doing. So it's very important to be the maverick when you're at a poker table. Carlos, where should we carve this? Because I feel this needs to be carved somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I love this. Like, be the maverick. I, I love this. This is, I, I absolutely love this. Yes. So, and uh, Carlos, do I have your permission to use this in some of my future lectures? You do. You do. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Thank you, sir. I'm definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing that. Yes, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is amazing. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You, you, you want to sort of be a, a kind of kind of different person, um, go in the opposite direction. I would say that that did remind me of another uh, another one of those incentives that I think about a lot. You know, the, besides maximizing hourly rate, I think a lot of people are they're trying very hard not to look foolish, to to make plays that even if they're not winning plays, that they are they are plays that are not going to be seen as bad by the people that they're playing against and or that they can kind of justify to themselves, maybe to their spouses, things that aren't going to cause them to lose sleep at night, uh, where, you know, if, if you do, for instance, run a big bluff and it fails, uh, you, you get called, you you, like, you look foolish, or you know, I think there's a concern anyway that you're going to look foolish. Um, to me, it looks very strong. I'm worried about people who run a big bluff, get called, casually turn over their cards, and then just like, okay, reload. Like, that's very scary to me. But I think that for a lot of people, that's like, there's a concern that they're going to look foolish when, when they're doing that or that it's hard for them if their buddy asked how'd you lose all your money and you have to say oh i triple barred it off with 530 offset and conversely like if you make a strong hand you make the second nuts and someone else has the nuts even if you know maybe you could have found the discipline to fold or a really good player would have folded there you can easily say to yourself oh what could i do yeah i ran i ran the second nuts into the nuts you know and and you know everyone will sort of nod sympathetically when you tell that story uh, absolutely. And uh, and incidentally, this is a, a good lesson for anybody who's playing live because you can actually get a lot of live reads based on people who do not want to make fool of themselves. Like often people, for example, a classic thing that happens live all the time when somebody calls preflop with a really bad hand because they don't want to, you know, feel the pressure, the peer pressure of people like, hey, do you play this garbage? You know, sometimes they will call and say, hey, donation. You know, I'm calling, but I'm letting you know, I'm signaling, I'm <laughs> yeah. calling with a bad hand. Well, thank you for the information. I really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm sorry, I interrupted you now. No, 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 not at all. This is this is awesome stuff. Uh, 
I, I I just remember that um, I was I was reading recently uh, on, on on two plus two like they had this this thread I don't know if you guys saw it basically having this discussion whether or not a five hundred and eight player would beat you know the let's say the two best players in the world uh, heads up uh, no limit three handed I don't know if you if you ever saw that conversation I think it was on. Uh, uh, on Twitter, I'm not on Twitter much these days, but apparently it started on Twitter or something like that. And I was wondering if you guys had uh, any insight on that uh, on that uh, debate that broke in. It's just sort of like uh, disconnected with the rest of the conversation, but I just randomly remember. So my understanding is, you said a um, 500 NL player. Are we talking specifically like? I think I've heard that like 500 NL Zoom on PokerStars is like like the toughest game there is. Mm -hmm. So if we talk, are we talking about like like a random player from that game? Right. So if if I understand the conversation correctly, because again, I mean, I just sort of like skimmed through it. I didn't go through all the details. I just thought it was an interesting topic of discussion, and we can we can change the parameters however we want here in the discussion. But basically, uh, it went something like this. A you know a YouTuber and coach uh, on 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 Twitter posted something along the uh, along the lines of well if one of my good students who plays 500 L were to play with like say two crushers like let's say Linus and Stefan something like that uh, three handed they they would basically break even I mean they mm. wouldn't lose that much because you know they're they're not making you know th that many mistakes and then basically the 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 con the controversial topic about it is that whether or not the elite players on their specific domain in this case in this case in this case uh, shorthanded um, cash games whether or not they have a huge skill differential from let's say the mid tier you know like you know 500 like the online grinder grinders which are you know still good players but they're not exactly top does the question make sense it does to me I guess the question would have to be asked these top level players like in what field are they top level? Because there's some tournament crushers, especially live tournament crushers, who I think would get crushed uh, by some random mediocre, you know, 50 and L um, um, reg. So, but if this is someone who is like actually a high level poker thinker and someone, or someone who is a crusher in a similar, more similar format to 50, 500 and L, then I think they would stand a better chance. But like, if you took like, I would say probably like the top 10 players on uh, the all time tournament cash game list, I imagine most of those players would get, if not crushed, they definitely would not, you know, crush a random player in a, you know, 50 and L uh, PokerStar Zoom pool. Yeah, I, I did not immediately recognize the, the conversation, but as, as you explained it further, I, I did see a little bit of this. I think the person who made that original, the initial claim of you know the, the people that I coach in, in 500 NL Zoom would not lose very much playing against the best players in, in the world, I believe was Salo Costa, who was a standout standout guest for us from from last year. Um, I don't I don't remember who the person was that he was um, that, that was on the other side of this. I think it's George. Actually, was his name? Oh, that's something right. Like yes. That. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, George YMB or something is his. Right. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't have insight into that. You know, I'm. I'm not real familiar with those games in particular. I, in my previous life, was a uh, competitive debater and debate coach and debate teacher. And so, what I saw of of their their back and forth, um, and I don't. I did not see the entire thing. It. I, I think George had pretty well convinced me. I mean, George 
posted some essentially you know posted graphs large sample sizes relatively you know relatively large sample ten, tens of thousands of hands of people you know beating really tough high stakes games for significant win for like five six big blind win rates and right. i think that that's like the the people that he was beating and that those people were beating in those games were presumably like the 500 nl zoom crushers or better so i mean th that that seemed pretty definitive to me of like there are people who are winning in these really big tough games at like a pretty good at, at, at the kind of clip where solo was claiming his students would you know would not lose at that clip but like if people are winning at that clip someone is losing at that clip. <laughs> <laughs> right right exactly you're absolutely right and and, and if, if, if we think about it i don't know like i, I feel like it at least in my case, it sort of matches my intuition when I compare this to something like chess. Obviously, uh, the chess and poker have their differences, namely perfect information versus imperfect information, variance, no variance, like basically uh, luck being involved versus luck not being involved. But uh, I would think that when it comes to the skill aspect of the game, so if we sort of like control for the variance, basically we increase the the sample size to amounts where we're comfortable that luck plays a minimal role. I don't see a reason why we shouldn't expect that there should be degrees of skill differentials, meaning, you know, we can have, you know, the, the local club expert, then we have the master, uh, you know, the international master, the feeder master, the international master, the grandmaster. So, but the difference between, let's say, a grandmaster and an international master in chess is humongous. Like the uh, basically, the international master will never beat a grandmaster in in a game of chess. Now, you know, poker is different, but perhaps if we define game as let's say hundred thousand hands or more, I, I I wouldn't see why it shouldn't be the same in 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 poker as well, right? Why you know like the whatever we would call an international master poker player versus a grandmaster poker player, I wouldn't expect this to uh, to to be different. You guys have any insight on that? Uh, only that that sounds, I mean, yeah, I, I think we're on the same page about that. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And my assumption would be in this sort of environment, it would just be the player that plays closest to theory of GTO would be the one that does the best. And I imagine the 500 NL Zoom player has more experience in that than someone like I think Linus was the name that was brought up. I'm not 100% sure like what sort of games he plays, but I bet you a decent amount of it is finding exploits against like the weakest players in tournament fields. And because his that's his expertise, he's going to be a little bit less, I'm assuming, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I would assume he would be a little bit less theoretically solid than someone who isn't looking for exploits against weaker players. They're just trying to come closer to GTO against other good players who are also trying to come close to GTO. And I think that's going to automatically give them an advantage against pretty much anybody who isn't doing the same thing. Makes sense. I'm, I'm thinking back to our conversation, uh, Carlos, that we had with um, Sam Grafton when we were talking about the the dynamics and like the the super high rollers. And so, I mean, I think what you said is technically true that like anyone who played very close to to GTO, like I'm kind of by definition, wouldn't be losing at a very high clip. But um, what what Sam suggested, if I'm remembering that that interview correctly, is that there are situations that people are not familiar with because they might not be part of like a standard 
game tree. And so one thing that people were doing was like, even if a solver says we well, would never, you know, bet six big blinds in this spot, like if, if if you knew how to handle the six big blind branch of the game tree and your opponent had not studied that branch, then you might actually have a higher EV by pushing the game onto, onto that branch. So again, I, I have no independent insight into this, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's the kind of thing that people who are like battling in the nosebleeds against other regulars, if that's the, that's the kind of place where they're finding those sorts of edges is by exploring like relatively unexplored branches of the game tree and, and finding ways that they can, they can do things that are technically deviations from equilibrium, but that are, are not particularly exploitable ones, and ones where it's possible that their opponents who are not studied on those branches could make significant mistakes. Yeah. And see, this is exactly why earlier I said, who is this opponent we're talking about? Because if we're just talking about, you know, the top players on GPI, then I think there's some validity to it. But if we're talking about high-level poker thinkers, these are gonna these are gonna be people who are able to better than most figure out how to navigate a branch of the game tree that they've never been down before. So if we're talking like I'm just going to assume Phil Ivey. I don't know enough about that sort of player, but I think it's kind of general consensus that, you know, he's the type of person who could like figure it out without a solver a lot better than, you know, say some, I don't want to say any names, but top 10 on GPI. You can pick which player you think I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and maybe GPI. GPI is not the right list. I'm thinking um, all-time tournament cash list is the list I'm thinking of. So, like, that, that top 10. Like, there's a lot of players there that I don't think we'll be able to figure this out. And also, Andrew, you bring up a good point, is that maybe it's not about uh, and maybe this you're saying this is what Sam's point was. It's not about coming as close to GTO as possible because what we learn from solvers isn't really true GTO because we always have to put some sort of constraints on the bet sizes. Right. And so when that's the case, you can easily just break the game for the people who've studied like standard bet sizes by using a non -bet, a non-standard bet size. And then now we get to find out who's really like, you know, the top level poker player who can figure out what to do after we've kind of like gone down this unexplored suboptimal based on what we the inputs we put in um, branch of the game tree. And I think a player like Phil Ivey would be able to do that uh, more so than some of the other um, players that people may have in mind. Especially, especially on the fly, right? I mean, there's some people who are like have this innate ability of understanding spots that uh, either even if they see them for, for for the first time. I mean, there's some people who have like better innate ability at doing that. Uh, Isildur One back in the day was really good at that. You know, like basically uh, being able to adapt to to new situations. Durr back back in the day uh, as as well. But it's interesting, gentlemen, because like as you as as you're saying this, like it. If if I were to just rephrase this, mostly you know for for my my own understanding, and hopefully it's going to be helpful to the to the listeners as well, it could be possible that we can have a mix between an exploitable and a GTO strategy, right? So these um, non-typical bet sizes obviously could be exploitable, or at least uh, people haven't studied them yet. But the person who's actually using them can actually run sims ahead of time so they can play GTO from that point onward, right? So so they they can actually, so this is like basically a, a, a half a half and half situation, um, not necessarily in, in that distribution, but it, it is interesting because it creates a dynamic and also specifically for three-handed, 
The other thing is that the tree on three-handed is much more dense than it is, for example, in full ring. And by dense, I mean there's far more paths and there's far more branching, mostly because the ranges are far wider. So it's an interesting opportunity for people to find subsections of that tree to send their opponents. There's a lot more, uh, there's like when you have just to oversimplify, when you're dealing, let's say, with a thousand paths versus 10 paths, it's much easier to make somebody get lost in thousand paths versus the 10 paths. That's what, what I mean by more dense. So there's density, even though clearly like the, the overall game tree is smaller uh, in three-handed than nine-handed because it's just a portion of the game, just a three-handed uh, portion of the game. The, the tree over there is much more dense. There's many more paths overlapping, going left, going right, because of how like wide the ranges are. So somebody who understands this really well can actually help you get lost in the deep dark <laughs> yeah. forest, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect analogy. Yeah, it's so, so so exciting. I always love talking to you guys. Like, you know, we go into these <laughs> wild places with, with strategies. It's so much fun. I, I briefly kind of had the thought, as I often do before an interview, of like, oh, I should think about like what we're going to talk to Duncan about. And <laughs> truly just like, oh, I, I think I just this started with me asking you, like, what have you been up to lately? And then we just like have spiraled for an hour off of like that. Initial. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Can't help ourselves. I love it. I remember that um, you had some background in playing. Uh, you mentioned like Slay the Spire, uh, which we're actually, do you know who Jorbs is? Yeah. Yeah. I love Jorbs. Um, so we he we're scheduled to have an interview with him uh, on this show uh, really? coming up relatively soon. Yeah, he was he was suggested by one of our patrons. I'd never heard of him before, um, and then I was like, oh yeah, this, this seems like a good guest. And for the listener, Jorbs is a YouTuber who plays uh, Slay the Spire. And again, for the listener, Slay the Spire is a card game uh, where um, it's called also a deck builder. Uh, for those of you who may have played either Magic: The Gathering or Hearthstone. You basically start with some basic cards, uh, which you use them to interact with an opponent on the screen, and progressively you improve those cards. I mean, like a typical RPG, you you get better, uh, you level up, and you get better cards, and those cards create combinations. So now you have better tools to combat the AI that you're playing against. So it's a single-player game. Uh, it's you against the computer. But uh, as we know from poker, even with... Uh, with 52 cards, we can do a lot of things. So if you don't put any limit on those cards, imagine what, what you can do. So uh, Carlos, are you are you interested at all in, in other card games other than poker? Not really. And I mean, I'm not even as interested as I should be in other formats of poker. Like I've spent so much time trying to get better at no limit tournaments mm -hmm. that that's primarily what my focus is. I don't want to like derail Andrew's question, but I do want to come back because like you mentioned earlier about this game where someone wanted to uh, lower their variance in a uh, high stakes cash game. And you suggested, well, if you didn't worry about, you know, not being invited back, um, short stacking is a way to do that. I don't know if you have an experience with that, or, but that's something that, you know, I am interested in because I have access to games where I don't have to worry about being frowned upon me short stacking, or at least it may be frowned upon, but I don't have to worry about it. So, <laughs> uh, and that's one way as a tournament player that I can 
force myself to play cash games because the problem with me for cash games is that it's kind of boring when you're like super deep and like it's rare that the stacks get in when I'm so used to playing short stacks and getting in often in, in, in tournaments. So if I'm able to like short stack a cash game, then I can make it more like a tournament in my mind. So do you have any like, you know, insights on like short stacking strategy? Yeah, no, that, that that's an uh, that, that's an excellent question. Be, before I forget, just one thing that you mentioned uh, that you per perhaps incorrectly you are focusing and you use the word focus. Just FYI, when they asked uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates to write one word that they thought led to their success, without thinking twice, they both write down the word focus. So okay. focus is not something to be underestimated. Just I know this is an anecdotal story, but just focusing on something can actually be incredibly. <laughs> and and <laughs> and now segue to what you just uh, you just said. Your expertise on uh, on on tournaments, by definition, short stack uh, poker, can have tremendous consequences in cash games. The the predominant example, again going to another anecdotal story, is basically Phil Helmuth. When Phil Helmuth is sitting down to all of these televised games, one of the things that he does is buying in short. The uh, it, and many people, you know, they will question whether or not, you know, uh, Phil Helmuth, although a great tournament player, whether or not he would be able to beat the games if he was playing deep stack. And again, this is an open question. I'm not going to take sides right. either way, but it's not an obvious. The, the answer is not obvious. Just because you're tournament crasher doesn't mean it translates well to cash games. However, by playing short. He effectively does two things. Number one, he reduces the game, obviously, to his stack becomes the effective stack if you're the shortest uh, stack at the table, which is something he's incredibly comfortable with. And the second thing is that you get incredible leverage. Often what happens with a short stack, you're going to be in those situations, especially if we're talking about ultra short stack, we're talking like 20 big blinds or less, you're going to be in those situations where people are going to be priced in and you're going to be often, you know, three or four or five ways all in, all in for your stock. The other players are still playing. Right. This is an incredible advantage to you, right? Nobody can knock you, like nobody has any way of, of uh, knocking you off the off the pot. So that actually you have protection, essentially. You have they're knocking each other out. I mean, your yeah. equity is your equity. Your equity is set in stone. I mean, if you, if you didn't make them fold pre-flop, I mean, you know, you lost that part of the fold equity in that where on that path where that wasn't realized. But from there, your equity is locked. You will realize 100%. You will never have any issue of, of losing any of that. And that turns out when you run the calculations, that is a tremendous EV for you. The fact that you that, that, that you have that protection. It's also it's also incredibly annoying. <laughs> when there's <laughs> other people, you know, like sitting there is like, oh, you have like um, those things, like we call them dry, dry pots, right? Dried yeah, side pots, right? I mean, side get, pots, yeah. Yes, I mean, obviously, we, we, I don't know why I say we. I mean, you guys obviously play tournaments. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's the same thing. But like these dry side pots are a nightmare, right? I mean, imagine, <laughs> imagine you're like five way all in, you know, for twenty big blinds each. There's this hundred big blinds in the middle. And now you, you want to protect your hand and you just can't. Right. Because there is that one person who's all in. So it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, there's still, you know, obviously, like you can still make, you know, small sizing there typically is a very, very good idea. Small sizing multi ways is a typical idea to begin with, a good idea to begin with, but especially in those cases. But yeah, that that, that would be sort of like, a, a, like you have tremendous amount of leverage against your competition. 
does that help, Carlos? It, it, it does help. It does help. And uh, it's something that I want to start doing to kind of, you know, get my toes wet and, and introduce myself back into cash games um, in a way that works for me. Uh, but what I find is that there's not a lot of like strategy material on that out there. So whenever I hear someone who mentions that, I, I like to um, ask if 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 they you know have any experience with it uh, because like there's yeah you, you as far as I know there's no training site that has like short stacking videos right. and I haven't found a short stacking book or anything like that so I'm always looking for information on that so so that was helpful thank you excellent and and also I also remember there are like ACR does offer uh, some that would be another interesting place to perhaps sort of like get your feet wet if you want. Like there are some cash games where there is some short stacking going on. And, and the reason why I'm, I'm suggesting the short stacking games as opposed to, you know, like, you know, a, a regular cash game where you buy in short, which you can just do that. I was doing some experimenting and I've noticed if you get involved in a, in a short stack cash game, I mean, again, this is anecdotal and my, my own personal experience, my win rate was much better, which was very unexpected. I didn't, I didn't expect that, you know, like by, by being, you know, but what, what happens is that also people make mistakes also once their stocks uh, increase, because again, obviously if you double up, you say one or two times, then the strategy should be, should be different. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Back to um, Slate Aspire. <laughs> yes. Well, so my, my question was actually not about Slay the Spire, but okay. the um, the explanation that you gave, Duncan, was was very sure. useful uh, because it's you know, the Slay the Spire, as you said, is a, a game where it's a one player game where you're playing against the computer. Right. So there's not that same evolutionary pressure like we were we were talking about. But if you do have any experience, like you mentioned uh, Magic or Hearthstone, mm -hmm. have you have you played those at all? I have. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so, you know, those games are, I, I've been playing one now called Marvel Snap, which is a, a similar... Um, I'm aware. Okay. <laughs> so for, <laughs> for people who are, it's, it's a similar sort of game where uh, you know, players build build decks and compete against one another. And in most formats, you don't know the deck of the person that you're going to play. You know what's right. possible. You know what cards are out there. And you might even know what's popular, what, what kinds of decks people are, are building, but you don't know when you're matched up against someone, what, what their deck is going to be. And so, you know, there is, we talk about metagame and poker, but like, people really talk about metagame in, in the context of, of those deck building games. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting to see how game theory gets, gets used in, in that, in that context, because it's often a, it's sort of an elaborate game of rock, paper, scissors, where it's like well, deck A beats deck B, but loses to deck C and deck C loses to A, but beats B. But it's not, you know, it might be like a seven way game of, of rock, paper, scissors. And so you're trying to find, you know, how do you, how do you optimize within that for people who are you know, really taking it seriously, which is, you know, a question of, how you want to approach a game. But where I was going with that is you know, you, there is a kind of evolutionary pressure within those games where if, if one kind of deck becomes popular or even a certain card becomes very popular, then that pushes other things out of the metagame where you're like, well, everyone plays this card that destroys this kind of deck. I can't really play that kind of deck anymore. And so then whatever deck you were feeding on, like the the decks that, that you were very good at beating, if if you can't play your deck, now that that deck that you were previously like keeping, I mean, it's literally like a, it's like a population of wolves and deer. Like if, if something comes along and kills all the wolves, well, then the deer are, are going to run around and, and 
thrive. And uh, so you, you see that in that, that evolutionary thing much more clearly in those other games. But I do think about that, like you do kind of see it reflected in poker because you can think of different poker strategies are kind of like decks. So it is like, if, if you're trying to come in with the strategy of I'm going to bluff a lot and someone else is playing the strategy of I'm going to call a lot, you know, you are going to get pushed out. Like the, the bluffers, as you said, they get pushed out of the metagame. Like they're they're getting ruined by people who are playing a different sort of strategy. And you can either keep showing up and losing. And, and some people are willing to do that, but very few are. And so a lot of those people just stop playing. And then there's a third, a third deck, a third like strategy of I'm not going to call a lot of big bets. And if all the bluffers have been pushed out of the metagame, then the people who are playing the I'm not going to call a lot of big bets uh, strategy, they thrive. And it, that's not innate to the game of poker. It's innate to that ecosystem and the way that it's evolved. That, uh, so beautiful. Exactly. So beautiful. And just just for the, the sake of, of completion, I mean, I, 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 I can't help, but you mentioned it could be like a, a, a seven-way cycle. There's actually, for, for any listener who might be into card games, there's actually a very rock, paper, scissors cycle in, in card games. You have the, the aggressive decks, which are typically decks that very quickly they want to kill you for, for all intents and purposes. Uh, typically, these decks are being beaten what are known as control decks, which are decks which are very, very slow, counter all your threats, and then they give you a slow and painful death, very annoying decks. And then there's decks which are called the combo decks, combination decks, that basically have basically a combination of three or four cards that basically kill you instantly, which they're sort of like sit in the middle. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're slow enough to make control decks kind of useless, but fast enough to kill them before the, the slow and painful death. So it goes really full circle. Aggressive decks, beat control de beat um, combo decks, combo decks beat control decks, and control decks beat aggressive decks. So you have a literal rock, paper, scissor, you know, just the, the nerd in me couldn't resist to, to, mention, to mention that cycle, but you're absolutely correct. Like, you know, the idea of that evolutionary change uh, that depending on what population is either overrepresented or underrepresented, allows for other people to actually, you know, adjust accordingly, or basically, in this case, they would move from one type of deck to another. So if you live in a world of like a lot of control decks, then you want to build a combo deck. If you live in a world of a lot of combo decks, you want to build an aggressive deck, and, 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 and so on and so forth. And it's an incredibly interesting dynamic, like for poker players who are just interested in the in games a lot, I would I would highly suggest trying, you know, uh, either you know, some sort of like, you know, uh, most of these games are just free, by the way. I mean, you can play Magic the Gathering Arena or Hearthstone or Marvel Snap. I mean, these are great. And incidentally, Marvel Snap was made by the same lead designer that made Hearthstone. I don't know if you, if you knew that, Andrew. No, I did not. Yeah. The other thing that I think is, is interesting with that, that rock, paper, scissors analogy, because when you're, when you're literally playing rock, paper, scissors, rock beats scissors 100% of the time. And in these card game analogies, what it really translates into is rock wins like 70 80 percent of the time maybe depending right. on on the situation and so i my understanding is a lot of the strategy because you, you you can't just choose the one that beats everything like that that's right. the the sort of the naive strategy people will come onto like a you know the reddit for these games or whatever and be like what's the best deck and it's like there might be an answer to that but it's not the answer you're looking for it's not just like well there's just a deck that beats everything so, so people will be like well i don't like that deck because it loses to this and so well everything loses to something and so what you're trying to do often is you're trying to find the one that it's like okay i'm, I'm gonna 
to play the uh the the, the control deck and accept mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gonna have a pretty good matchup against the aggressive decks and i'm gonna struggle against combination decks but maybe because this is a game you're building a, a deck depending on the game you're playing 12 or 30 or 60 cards i might be able to tweak the composition of that a little bit where I'm going to hurt my win rate a little bit against the really aggressive decks, but I'm already pretty favored against those anyway. Right. And I'm going to I'm going to move the numbers. So instead of losing 80% of my matches to the the combo decks, I'm only going to lose 60% of them or something. So that that like the, the the subtlety of this is playing at the margins of I know that I'm unfavored in in this matchup, but I can I can make it so I'm not as unfavored and give myself like sort of the, the highest overall win rate against the the meta. And so then there is the sense, how do you define the meta? And my, my recollection from playing Hearthstone was that there was even a site that literally collected this data of which decks, which decks were being played and could calculate for you, like, what is the optimal deck for you to play given the percentages of like what everyone else is playing and given like empirical win rates of this deck versus other decks. And at some point I did kind of start to wonder like, well, what am I really doing here? Like, I don't know. <laughs> You love I mean, games, Andrew. That's by the way, for those of you wondering, the, the website is called hearthstoneplay.net. So if you're interested in, you know, going and, and getting some uh, one of the one of the ones that have the, the yeah. Yeah. And it's uh isn't it wonderful though? You know, like wondering like in <laughs> in in the world of, of, of games and you know, trying to to figure things out. I mean, isn't that one of the aspects? I I shouldn't say the aspect, of course, but like it isn't one of the aspects why we, we we like poker. It is, but it, 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 when I say like, what am I doing here? It is kind of the thing of like, well, wait, is this something I'm doing for recreation or is this like, since I am a professional poker player, like th th there's also a part of me that's kind of, that is relating it back to poker is kind of analyzing like, oh, look at how people are using game theory here. Isn't that interesting? And yeah, I, I, I find that like a funny, uh, it's not quite a paradox, but you know. It is. It is funny. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, you don't want to know how many hours I've clocked in Hearthstone. You know, you, 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 you really don't want to know. Yeah. So, but, uh, but yeah, Jorbs uh, is, is an excellent guy, highly, highly intelligent. And is, he's one of those people going back to, uh, to what Carlos said earlier. He's one of those people who really turned the word focus into a, a different level. He took this game, which is literally, again, a man against the computer. It's what we call PVE, player versus environment, as opposed to PVP, player versus player, and took it to the next level. He's playing, like obviously, like at the highest level that that game has. And now he, the challenge he gave to himself was to basically create a, uh, a chain of victories at the super high level of this game, which is actually incredibly difficult. And he somehow, after I don't know how many hours he has, like, close to 5,000 hours, like it could be 10,000 hours at this point, like, you know, a lot of hours in that game, he still finds ways to creatively beat the game, which is incredible. This is a testament both to his skills, but also to the designers of the game, that they were able to create so much variety and so much interaction within a game that players can come back to it and try it again and again and come up with, with different strategies. That's, that's a really perfect roguelike if you know such word exists <laughs> well and it's particularly tough for wait for like a, a pve game as you said because you know, a, a game like magic or hearthstone i mean partly they rely on creating new cards for the novelty but a lot of it they're just relying on well you're playing against other humans so the other humans are going to bring a lot of the interest to the game we don't have to worry about because that's it, a problem when you're playing against you know like old nintendo games or whatever you're just playing against the computer and the computer does the same thing every time and like well it gets sort of stale 
after a while. So I think a lot of the games that are most popular now are are introducing multiplayer elements. So they don't the programmers don't have to build in the interest. You're just like, oh, well, other humans will provide the the dynamism in the game. And so it does seem like a, a particular achievement for uh, to create a dynamic one player game. Absolutely. And speaking of Nintendo games, I have to ask you guys, did you see what happened with Tetris? <laughs> have you guys been following? <laughs> no, I haven't. I, I, yeah, I saw this, but you can... If you get an opportunity, and, and that for the listener out there, anybody can go on YouTube and just click Tetris and, you know, history and things like that. There's a lot of uh, interesting... Uh, but basically, um, what's interesting about the game is that humans, the, the short version of it, found new ways to go further and further deeper into the game. Because essentially, uh, most, most listeners probably know what Tetris is, but it's basically like a bunch of blocks that are coming down on the screen and you just sort of like, in a puzzle kind of way, you try to combine them in order to make uh, horizontal lines. But, and also many people know that as you progress in the game, the game gets faster. It gets faster and faster and faster and faster, which means at some point, humans are not fast enough to keep up. And for the longest time, there was a bottleneck in the game that people, they, they call it the pseudo kill screen. It was going so fast that no human was actually fast enough to move the pieces. And it turns out there was a guy who came and had like a new strategy that was feeling like almost like, you know, playing the guitar. It's called hyper tapping where you basically hit the controller in a certain way. It's, it's, it's insane stuff. And it turns out that was only the beginning of a cascade of effects. I'm, I'm not gonna you know, ruin the rest, but only about a month ago or so, they actually found the first kill screen. Namely, the game crashed because of the, 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 the programmers at the time didn't think that anybody would reach that far. So there's basically, error in the code essentially right i mean it's basically looping indefinitely and it is so incredible like the level of analysis that people have done to this game they would actually calculate the probabilities of such a cross happening at different points of the game with with exact precision i would say you know if you get into that level with 25 percent chance if you have exactly if you do three rows instead of two you're going to get a crash but it has to be this exact specific sort of like setup it's just mind-boggling how deeply people you know have, anal have analyzed this game and how you know humanity as a whole has actually reached these levels i mean i, I don't know it, it it baffles me like how people again speaking of focus like if, if this is not focusing i don't know what is i saw something around that people had like someone had beaten tetris or, or something or you kind of gotten the, the highest possible score but I, I didn't have all that context so thank you for that no, absolutely. He, he he basically reached the, the first kill screen. Right? I mean, the game crashed, so he couldn't continue even if he wanted to, which was, it happened, you know, 30 years after the game was introduced or, or something. Well, is, is there anything else, Duncan, that you wanted to uh, to, to talk about or plug or anything? Uh, nope, I don't I don't have any any plugs. Probably like my, my publisher will, will kill me if I don't mention the book, which you guys already did, Why, why Alex uh, Beats Bobby at Poker. You can find them uh, in all places where you know you can find books, um, Amazon, and also DNB uh, Poker, the publisher. But yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I, I didn't I didn't expect we, we should you know we will venture into the the, the world <laughs> of, of games. But uh, yeah, hopefully 
you guys will have a, a wonderful conversation with George as well. I mean, he's he's also like a, a gamer at heart and you can talk about strategic games and all the fun stuff. I'm looking forward to to listen to that podcast for sure. Yeah, I'm glad I got a chance to ask you. I, I just, I, just while you were talking uh, and kind of singing his praises, I jotted down a few things that you'll probably hear come up when I speak to him. I'll, I'll probably quote you and, and have him respond to what you said. He's, he's, he's really great. And, and also, he's approaching the game in a very similar way a, a poker player would. I mean, often people making fun of him when he's busting out the, the spreadsheets, right? I mean, you know, he's like, listen, <laughs> just, just to beat this game. It's incredible. I mean, anytime somebody get spreadsheets to beat a game. I mean, you, you got to respect that. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thanks very much, Duncan. It was it was great catching up with you. And uh, if, if you do, I know I volunteered Carlos previously for the uh, Philosophical Fridays, but uh, I'm also always at your disposal if you do fire that back up again. Oh, we appreciate it. Yeah, no, we would love to have you both. Maybe, you know, we can do a, an episode with, uh, with both of you one at a time, whatever you you guys feel comfortable. Like, like I said, we're going to try to see first if, you know, we can get some of the uh, technical uh, aspects of it because it, it turns out it's it's a t- tremendous amount of work. I mean, you guys you probably will know, and uh, we're, we're we're very busy. But uh, hopefully, we will revive it, and and you guys are going to be first on the list for sure. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again. Sounds good. Absolutely. Thank you. of a car light of the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into law I know you won't you won't